0: Turn in our Bibles to the book of 1 Peter chapter 2. We finally made it to chapter 2. We're continuing through the text today. And I said something in my prayer that hit me as we're singing that song, but we can can sing and we can ask God all day long to stir up a passion in our souls. And He will do that. But unless it is sustained by this book, that passion will diminish y'all with me the people that I know that are the most passionate about God that making the biggest difference for the Lord in their schools in their neighborhoods in the world are the people that consistently get their life by the Holy Spirit inspired word of God and that's what we're talking about today is how do we keep and sustain a desire for God's word when it's so easy not to do that Um, One of the things I've learned in life is that a passion for God's Word is something that a lot of times diminishes in our lives. When I first started walking with Jesus, um, I longed to be in God's Word. I couldn't get enough of it. I didn't have to schedule it. I didn't have to think about it. It was something I just wanted to do. I longed for more than anything else in the world. It was my first love phase, but then what happens? Life happens. We get married. We get busy. We have kids. We get jobs. And... And the routine of life starts getting hectic and we find ourselves skipping a day in God's word here, missing a day in God's word here. It's something we sort of sometimes have to make ourselves do, we have to schedule it, we have to discipline ourselves to do it and it stops being this overflow and longing that we have in in our lives. And what Peter is gonna say today and show us today that if that's you, that there was a time in your life where there was a longing for the word of God, But you've seen that diminish in your life, that the reason that's happening is because there's probably something that's entered into your life that's made that longing for the word of God diminish. Okay, and the whole point of the sermon today, guys, is that a deep longing and a deep passion for the word of God is not the mark of a new believer, but it's the mark of every believer. And that's what Peter's gonna show us today And that we need to fight like crazy if that passion for God's word is not in our life, in our hearts. So I'll tell you what, do this. Go to 1 Peter 1, 24. Let's pick up where we left off last week. 1 Peter 1, Peter says, for all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. It says the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever he says, this word is the good news that was preached to you. And so Peter tells us that everything in the world is going to eventually fade away, but the word of God is going to stand forever, right? And then, it's, so it's in the context of the Bible. It's in the context of the word of God that he says what he says next. And let's read it together. First Peter 2, 1. He goes, so... In light of the word of God, in light of the word of God that was preached to you, in light of the word of God that never fades away, he says, so, therefore, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. He says, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good, okay? Okay? So what I'm going to do today is I'm going to approach this text a little differently. Kind of the way our American minds are wired, I think it's going to make more sense to us if we start in verse 3 and work our way backwards. And so let's jump into verse 3. Let's see what he's saying here. In verse 3, Peter says, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now, everybody look at me. Peter says that there's something that's going to happen in your life. There's something that is gonna be the inevitable result in your life if you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now, he, he undoubtedly, he's making a reference to Psalm 34, eight, where he says, uh, where the psalmist says this. The psalmist says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. So both Peter and the psalmist are talking about, I want you to hear this. They're talking about what it's like to encounter the presence of God. They're talking about what it's like when you experience as an individual God's presence and his power and his love. And to do that, they both use the metaphor of taste. And I think they do that because taste is one of of the most powerful motivators in our lives. Last week, Pastor Freeman talked about his very first experience with Ruth Chris Steakhouse. And I literally, I was on the front row, I laughed, because I had a really similar experience in my life. When I was growing up, we weren't poor, but we were very middle class. My mom was a teacher, my dad was a fireman. And so we didn't have a lot of, you know, disposable income. And so steak was something that I didn't eat very often. Maybe I ate it once or twice a year. And when, when we did eat it, it was at this place of culinary excellence called the Western Sizzling. Anybody ever heard of the Western Sizzling? You, uh, this group down here has no idea what I'm talking about. But, and that was, that was it. That's where we went and got steak. And I actually really liked it because they had a salad bar, which is a big deal when you're your kid because you can get whatever you want to. And that, my parents would let me order a steak. Now, they wouldn't let me order a ribeye because that was too expensive. And so I had to get a sirloin. And I remember liking it. I remember it tasting good, but I remember it being really hard. Like, you could play hockey with that thing if you wanted to. And that was sort of my view and my experience of steak until I was in my 20s and I was in the Woodlands, Texas. And this couple that went to my church took me to a place in the Woodlands called Perry's Steakhouse. And they told me, I think it was my birthday, they said, you can get whatever you want. And so I took them up on that, and I ordered a, uh, I think it was a prime, which is like one of the top tiers of steak, prime cowboy cut ribeye. And um, they brought it out, kind of like Pastor Freeman talked about last week. Plate was super hot, it was sizzling, it had butter all, of it, all over it. I, I remember putting my knife on it and cutting it, and the thing just, just fell open because it was so tender. And I put it in my mouth, and I tasted it. And that song from Aladdin, the whole new world, starts playing <laughs> new fantastic point of view. You know, that's, that's playing over the loudspeaker and it absolutely blew my ever-loving mind. And it was in that moment, I really, I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to be funny. Like, it, that's the first time I'd eat, ever eaten a steak of that caliber. And so it kind of hit me in that moment. There's this whole other level, this whole other echelon of steak that I didn't even know existed. I'd never experienced it in my whole life. And it changed, it radically changed my view of steak from that moment forever, right? And what Peter's saying is that's how it ought to be with God. Is that there ought to be a moment in your life where you experience the presence of the living God and you taste and you see that he is good and in that moment you realize his presence is better than anything I've ever experienced in my whole life. And can I just tell you, but I've had that experience. I have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And I'm here to tell you, church, I'm here, there, there is absolutely nothing, and I mean absolutely nothing, that is better than the presence of the living God. There's nothing. There's nothing. King David is right. He said, in your presence is the fullness of joy. We were created for it. And in the times that I've experienced and the times that I've felt and sensed his presence, can I tell you that it's better than Perry Steakhouse? It's better than vacations on the beach, guys. It's better than Christmas morning. His presence is, it's better than sex. His presence is better than money. His presence is better than winning a Texas high school football championship. It's better than falling in love. And I've fallen in love. It's better than all of it. There is nothing that compares to the presence. Look at, look at me, students. There's nothing in this world that compares to the presence of the living God. Nothing. And if you're here today and you don't know what I'm talking about, you're a Christian, but you don't know what I'm talking about, something's wrong. Something's off. Maybe you've had a religious experience. That you haven't encountered the presence of the gospel and the living God radically changing your heart. If you read this book, there is not an example in this entire book of somebody that encountered the presence of God that was not completely and totally undone. That's another sermon for another day. Here's what Peter's saying. He's saying that if you've tasted And you've seen that the Lord is good, that he's better than anything you've ever experienced in your life, which if you've tasted him, you will see. He's saying that what the result is gonna be is it's gonna produce a longing in your life for this book. That's the result. Let's read it. 1 Peter chapter two, verse two. He says, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. Again, he's saying, look, if you've experienced the presence of God, if you've tasted and seen he's good, then here's what that's gonna do. His point is that is going 100%, it's going, will produce in you a longing for his word. That's what pure spiritual milk is. He's talking about the Bible. It's the context, it's the word of God. And so the question is, okay, I taste and see that the Lord is good. It's going to produce in me a desire for God's word. What is that desire going to look like? Does that mean all of a sudden I'm going to really like God's word? Does all of a sudden that means that um, I'm going to desire for it most of the time, part of the time? What does this desire look like that I'm supposed to have when I taste and see that God's everything I ever thought he would be, in 1 Peter 2, 2, look at it again. This is what our longing looks like. He says, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk of the word. He uses the word newborn for a reason. When a baby's first born into this world, it comes screaming and crying into the world. And what is the singular driving passion that that baby has? It's for its mother's milk. He said, "That's what happens when you taste and see the Lord's good, that you are going to have this driving passion for the word of God, like a newborn baby." But then it uses the word "long for." look at it. Like no, newborn infants long for." That phrase in the Greek, "long for." It's used seven times in the New Testament by Paul. And each and every time he uses it, it's a word that means this passionate ongoing, driving desire. Every time Paul uses it, it's this passionate, ongoing, driving desire, reoccurring, okay? And so Peter's saying this, he's like, look, if you've tasted and seen the Lord is good, in the same way that a newborn baby longs for his mother's milk, you will have an intense, reoccurring, passionate desire for the word of God in your life. And I read that this week and I got convicted. I mean, that is what he's saying, 100%. Like, it and seeing the Lord is good. The result is going to be, you're going to have this longing for God's word. And I got convicted because I, I long for the word of God some of the time. Um, but again, I don't know that I long for it every day. I don't know that, that I can honestly say that there are not other things in my life that I find myself longing for more than to be in his word. And so what Peter is about to say here and what he's about to teach us is if that's sort of where you're at, if you're kind of like me, you love God, you love his word, but I don't know if I long for it the way a newborn baby longs for its mother's milk. He's, he's about to tell us that if that's where you're at, it's probably because something's entered into your life that's hindering you from longing for the word of God. Let's read it. First Peter 2.1. He says, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. And he says, like newborn babes, long for pure spiritual milk. And so what Peter's doing is he's giving us five really specific sins. Five sins that if if they're in your life, if you're a believer, but they show up in your life, then those sins are more than just sins, but those sins have consequences. And one of the consequences is is that it's gonna numb and it's gonna diminish your hunger for God's word. The first one, let's go through them quickly. The first one is malice. He says, put away all malice. Now that's a general word for sin. That's Peter's catch-all word. And so he begins by saying, look, everything from pornography to adultery to pride to ungodly anger, catch-all word for sin. He's saying sin will diminish your hunger for God's word. He goes on and he says, deceit. Put away all malice and all deceit. That is a really interesting word. When you study it in the, in the language that the New Testament was written in, which is Greek, that word right there, deceit, is a phrase, really, that literally means to catch with bait. Peter says, hey, put away all your catching with bait. Now, this is Sage Mott, and we have a lot of fishermen in our church, and so this thing, this illustration I'm about to give you will make sense. And I don't normally do this, but I have a visual illustration today. And it is a, um, this is a, what I think they call a buzz bait. I think they're going to show it to, there you go, look at that. That's a buzz bait. And um, you catch largemouth bass with this thing. And at the end of the day, if you think about fishing, but what fishing is, is just one big fat deception. That's what fishing is. You take this little bait, right, and you put a put it on a string, you throw it out into the water. Fish is sitting there and he sees this thing go by. And a couple things that he's going to notice, number one is that it's, uh, it's shiny, right? It's got this little thing that's shiny. It makes noise, right? That gets his attention. The other thing you'll see is it's colorful. This is called chartreuse. And uh, that's, rednecks came up with that, chartreuse. And it's not green, Chartreuse. And the second thing is that it's got, uh, it's got a little skirt on it. Those are, those are for the male bass, right, to attract them. <laughs> and then if you're next level redneck, what you do before you throw this thing into the water is you spray it down with the stuff called gulp garlic spray. It smells like garlic because fish apparently like garlic. And so you spray it down and you throw this thing in the water and you're you're dragging it through the water and this bass is down at the bottom and he looks up because he hears a sound, right? And he sees it and it's shiny and he thinks, what is that? He's not really hungry because he ate a frog this morning, but he looks again and he's like, oh, it's green. That's pretty. That's pretty. And it's got a skirt. That's cool he's like, no, I'm not that hungry. I ate a frog this morning. And he's always just chilling, doing his thing. And then all of a sudden, he smells garlic, right? And he likes garlic. And so he's like, that's it. I can't stand it anymore. And so he comes up to it, and he puts the thing in his mouth, this delicious-looking, beautiful, colorful, shiny, noise-making, garlic-smelling lure. But then as he eats it, something happens. There's a redneck on the other side of it that pulls on it right? And then he pulls on it, the fish discovers there's another part of this thing that he didn't know. See if you can see it. It's a hook, right? The hook goes through the bass's mouth. And as he's being dragged back to the shore, the last thing that goes through the bass's mind is, I have been deceived, right? (laughs) Fishing is one big fat deception, And Peter literally says, hey, I want you to stop fishing with bait. Fishing with bait diminishes your desire for the word of God. What's he saying? He's saying, stop exaggerating. Saying, stop presenting yourself one way when that's not really who you are. He's saying, "Stop the the, the the little white lies that you're saying. You don't even realize you're saying them because they're so common coming out of your life." He said, "Those things we don't think they're a little uh, uh, we don't think they're a big deal, but he's saying they're a really big deal because every little white lie, every little exaggeration, every little moment that we're presenting ourselves in a certain way so that people can like us, not only is that sin, but what it does is actually numbs our desire for God's word." He keeps going, hypocrisy. Hypocr- hypocrisy is simple. It's when you present yourself one way in public, but it's not who you really are in private. He's saying every moment, the sort of walking in hypocrisy, not only is that sin, but that actually numbs your longing for God's work. He says envy. Envy is when you resent another person's prosperity, when you see things that someone else has and you long for it, but it doesn't stop there. It produces bitterness, produces anger, that sort of thing. He's saying every time you start envying other people's stuff, that that's actually drawing you away from the word of God. And here's another one. It's going to hit a little closer to home for us. Peter says, put away all slander. Slander. I got uh, convicted with this one. Because slander is one of those words, you know, when you look at the Greek and the English, a lot of times the Greek has a much more descriptive and tense meaning than the English Well, this is one of those times where the way we think about it in America is actually a more intense word in the Greek. When we hear the word slander, we think about it as kind of a legal term. Um, You can get sued for slander. Slander is when you say something really bad about somebody, but it's false. And so they sue you for slander. Well, slander in the Bible has a much more benign meaning. Everybody check this out. Slander, biblically speaking, just means when you whisper about someone behind their back in a negative way. It's called sin. Gosh, I was thinking about how often do you do that? How often do we just say, hey man, did you hear about so-and-so? Did you hear what he did? And what do you think about so-and-so? I I don't really like that person. Do you? How often do do we whisper negatively about someone behind our back to our family, to our friends, to our coworkers? Okay, now here's the thing. Scripture calls that sin. And I want, to, I want to read you a, a, a couple of scriptures here that just sort of show how big a deal slander is. Don't turn there, just listen. 2 Corinthians 12, 20. Paul's writing to the Corinthians and he says, for I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish and that you may find me not as you wish, that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder, okay? So he says, I'm afraid I'm gonna get there and I'm gonna find that the church is struggling with deceit, they're fishing with bait, and they're gossiping, and they're slandering one another, they're whispering negatively about, and you think, yeah, that's kind of bad, that's 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 crazy, that's not good, or whatever, but then look what he says next. in Verse 21, he says, I fear that when I come again my God may humble me before you and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality and sensuality that they practice. And here's what's fascinating, church, about those two verses is the Apostle Paul and the Holy Spirit inspired word of God in two verses, put slander and gossip on the same level as sexual immorality. And we think one is way bigger than the other. One's something that'll ruin your life, but the other one, we do it every day. But Paul's saying, no, actually, they're both sin. They both need to be mourned over. And they both need to be repented of. And not only is it sin, but it turns us away from the word of God. Okay, now here's the question. Why in particular, church, does sin cause you to lose your hunger for God's word? Like when you're a Christian, you feel the Holy Spirit, you allow sin to come into your life, why does that diminish your hunger for the word? Here's the answer There's two. Number one, is it because God is holy. Sin instinctively causes us to run away from God. God is holy and so we sin and instinctively cause us to run away from God. Think about Adam and Eve in the garden. When they sin, what did they do? I'll read it to you. Genesis 3.6 It says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate, which I remind my wife all the time that it was a woman's fault when we're in an argument. But it doesn't work. So she eats of the fruit, hence her husband, they, they just sinned. Watch what happens, Verse eight. "And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden. So they just sinned, and they hear God kind of cruising through the garden. What did they do? It says, "And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord." So that's what we do, isn't it? When we sin, we run away from God. We know He's holy. So we run away from the Lord, which, by the way, is the wrong thing to do now because of the blood of Jesus Christ that he shed on the cross. Your sin is paid for. It's forgiven. And so when we sin now as believers, the prodigal son tells us that we're his sons. We're his daughters. That cannot change. And so when you sin, we are to run to the Father, not run away. But that's the first thing is our natural inclination is to run away from God when we sin. Here's the second thing. Check this out. Second reason sin diminishes our hunger for God's word, listen, because at the end of the day, sin is an attempt to satisfy a spiritual hunger with food found from the garbage can of the world. Every single one of us in the sound of my voice here, everyone that's alive, has within us spiritual hungers. God put them there. Ecclesiastes 3.11, you hunger for God. You hunger for his presence. And when you sin, you are foregoing a God-sized, God-made Perry's Ruth Chris Steakhouse, better word of God right here. You're foregoing the best meal you ever had in your life to satisfy that hunger, and you're turning to like a six-day-old Big Mac that you found rotting in a pile of garbage to satisfy that hunger. You can eat it, and it might fill you up for a second, but pretty soon you're gonna find that it's gonna make you sick. All it'll do is turn you from feasting on the best meal you ever had. Bottom line, sin keeps you from the book. Now, I just want you to answer a simple question. I've been thinking about it all week. Guys, do you long for the Word of God? I mean, I'm speaking to Christians here. If... If you're not yet a believer in this room, I want you to know that this question really isn't for you. It's really for those that have the Holy Spirit, they've been saved, they've been made new. Do you hunger for it? Do you long for it? If you don't, then there's something that is diminishing that hunger. There's something diminishing the hunger. And if, if something is diminishing hunger, it's one of two things. If you don't long for the word of God, there's one of two reasons. Number one is that you've never tasted and seen that the Lord is good. That's one possibility. There's never been a time in your life where you've actually did what I talk about where you taste experience God and he blows you away. Maybe you had some religious experience back in the day. Maybe you, you know, did something when you were in the ninth grade or eighth grade, but you've never actually been changed because of the gospel of God. That's entirely possible. A couple of months ago, I shared a story about me going to Chick-fil-A. There's a Chick-fil-A right by my house. I got to drive past it. Every single morning and every single morning, church, I long for a Chick-fil-A chicken biscuit. Why? Why? Because they're good. Because I've tasted them. And they changed my life. And so when I, when, I, when I drive past it, because I've tasted that they're good, that produces that longing. And so if there's no longing, maybe you've never tasted And here's the second thing. If there's no longing, there might be sin in your life. We're almost done here. Hang with me. What does Peter tell us to do if we have sin in our life that's diminishing our hunger? 1 Peter 1, or excuse me, first Peter two, 1 Peter 2.1. Peter says, so put away, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Peter said, Christian, if you have sin in your life, it's hindering you from the word of God. So here's what you do. Put it all away. It's a fascinating phrase that he says right there. Listen carefully. The phrase put away was a phrase that was used when you took off or you stripped off your old, dirty, nasty, soiled clothes. That that was literally a phrase when you took off old clothes and you changed the new clothes. So what Peter literally is saying right there, that if you're a believer and that you have sin in your life, he literally is saying, hey, it's time for you to change clothes. Why would he say that? Why would that be his response? Hey, you got sin in your life. You need to be longing for the word of God. Time to change clothes. He's probably making reference to baptism here. When we baptize folks, we put this shirt on them that says forgiven. It's a new shirt. We put them in the water. We bring them out. It's a symbol that they've been buried with Christ and have risen again to walk in the newness of life. In the first century, in the early church, they did it a little differently. You got baptized in your old clothes. You got baptized in the stuff you came up in. They'd baptize you, you came out of the water, and when you got out, you took off your old clothes and you put on a brand new robe that the church gave you. It was this clean, brand new robe. That, listen, that was a symbol that you'd been buried with Christ and now you were taking off your grave clothes that were yours in your death, and now you've been clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. Okay? And so what Peter is literally saying today is that if you're a Christian, you've been clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, when you step into sin, what you're literally doing is you're putting back on your grave clothes. So you need to take them off. Great picture is this in the story of Lazarus. Lazarus, you know, he, he was one of Jesus' friends. He died. He died, he'd, he'd been dead for four days. Jesus shows up and Jesus decides he's gonna raise him from the dead. And he said, hey, move away the stone. And Martha says, hey, we can't move away the stone, but he's been dead for four days, Jesus. He's literally gonna smell bad. Watch what Jesus does in John eleven forty three, It says, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And look at verse 44, Lazarus is now alive. This is the man who had died, came out, but his hands and feet were bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with the cloth. And so he was dead for four days. Jesus brings him back to life, but he's still bound up in his grave clothes. I I gotta believe that that was simultaneously one of the coolest and funniest things anybody had ever seen. Because Lazarus is kind of walking out like that. He can't see. He can't run. He can't dance. He can't high-five anybody. He can't experience the life that Jesus had just given him because he was still in his grave clothes. That's what Peter's saying. He's saying, look, if you're a believer, if you've been clothed in the righteousness of Jesus and you still have sin in your life, he's saying you are walking around in your grave clothes. You're alive, but you're hindered with hypocrisy. You're alive, but you're hindered with slander. You're alive, but you're hindered with envy. He's saying, look, if that's you, for crying out loud, put them away. Take them off. And you will experience the life that Jesus gave you. And what's going to happen is you're going to start longing for God's word because you're going to be free. And I'll end today with this. I'm going to read two verses to you and ask you a question we'll be done. Job 23, 12, Job says, I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. Did you catch that? Job just said that his word is better than food. Can you say that? Psalmist in Psalm 19, eight says, the precepts of the Lord are right. Rejoice in the heart, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening his eyes, Lightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and, and, and righteous altogether. And then he says this, he says in verse 10, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. The psalmist just said his words, his book are more to be desired than gold. And so I just want to ask you a simple question, guys. Can you say that today? I just, can you, do you say, man, I I want this book more than I want food. I want this book. I want God's word. I want his precepts. I want it more than I want money. God, because I've tasted and seen that you're good. And so I desire you. I desire your word more than anything else. If you don't today, if your honest answer is no, I just want you to know that the saints of old are shouting from the pages of this book, his word is better than gold. His word is better than food. And So come, taste and see today that the Lord is good. Take off your grave clothes. It's the weekend, like newborn babies long for the pure spiritual milk of this book.